0: Back when I was doing Swamping, which was ostensibly a horror comic, I found that it wasn't really effective to just sort of swamp the readers in horror every issue. You needed to do other things that would alleviate the repetitive qualities of the horror and to make it more than a one-note script. I decided that what might be useful was to try and link up the elements of fantasy horror from our imaginations, werewolves, vampires, zombies, and the like, with real-life horrors. Racism, sexism, pollution, the collapse of the environment. And thus, lend these social issues some of the weight that fantasy fiction could offer. Most of us have little to fear from vampires. And yet, we live in cultures that are every bit as dangerous despite the non-existence of terrible supernatural forces.
1: Hello everyone. Welcome to the Alan Moore podcast presented by Struggle Session. Mm-hmm. I am Leslie 3rd I'm Jack Allison. Thank you once again for joining us on this special, special uh, mini-series where we were diving into the works of Alan Moore. And this week I wanted to pick out something a little bit different, a little bit special that I think a lot of people haven't read because it's this small publication mostly aimed at people who want to be comic book writers it's called alan moore's writing for comics it's originally was a series of essays published in a small fan scene in 1985 and it's very interesting that something like this exists because this is a uh, you know a writer at the top of his game talking about his field talking about his art But then 20 years later, he writes an afterword where he basically is like having a his own personal crisis of conscience <laughs> about whether being the greatest comic book writer on earth is actually worth a fucking damn or not. <laughs> and he's like questioning this whole process. Basically says, you know, you kind of can't ignore all the rules. I said that before because following those... If the rules you follow led you to this, what use were the rules? As <laughs> Anton says. And Alan Moore kind of has that. So it's a very interesting work. But you also... damn well, we'll learn about a lot about writing comic books and a lot about writing in general, like why you should even be a writer and write. And of course, we had to get a very special uh guest on this. This is this man is the hottest writer in all of comic books. Mr. Wednesday night, Aubrey Siderson.
2: Hey boys, thank you so much for having me. I uh I this this will be like the fourth time I've told this story now because I foolishly told it. Before we went live,
1: but uh, <laughs> no
2: lie, I was actually I was actually thinking about that. So first of all, I think about this book all the time uh, because I read it when it. Um, I have like the I have the Avatar edition. It came out in like two thousand three. I think that's probably the most popular one. I don't know, but I I have it. I bought it when it came out, and I was really excited about it because I like everybody else with half a brain is a big Alan Moore fan or was an M. Um, but I read it in two thousand three, and this was right before. I got an internship at Marvel comics, which led to a job at Marvel comics. And it was, I don't know. So it was, it was a fun thing for me to go back and reread because it was, I read it a really like kind of instrumental um, nascent period of me getting into the comic book industry. Um, and I was thinking about it a lot this weekend, um, just in the context of something that I'm working on right now. And uh, so Leslie, when you, reached out to me to talk about this thing i was thrilled because it was the, <laughs> the planets aligning and demanding that i actually sit down and reread this thing and it was a pleasure to do it so thank you for having me
1: oh absolutely absolutely i am so thrilled to have you and you know before we get into it man you are blowing up on the scene it's no yeah. joke thanks
2: man I appreciate
3: it, that.
1: It's is really nice. You got uh Savage Hearts out there, you got the words, dudes, and I uh, hear here we are getting uh, season two of No One Left to Fight. It's
2: coming back. It just got announced this week on EW. Uh we yeah. are coming back in October of this year. The entire original team, we're gonna um pick up right where you if if you haven't read No One Left to Fight, get on it. It's collected in trade right now. It's our yeah. It's our love letter to shounen fight manga, specifically Dragon Ball, but other ones as well. Uh, and yeah, we're coming back, picking up right where we left off with a, a, a rather gnarly cliffhanger at the end of the first uh, volume. So That's right. Yeah, we're thrilled.
3: No One Left the Fight is such a fun book. And it reminds me in some ways, and you'll probably be like, that's too much. But it does remind me of kind of the setup of Watchmen in the sense that it's like, this is the world past the time of heroes. Like there was a time and it was the golden era. And this is kind of when everyone is retired, (laughs) you know? So it does have a similar kind of, I think Game of Thrones has kind of a similar thing, but I I think it works really, really well.
2: Well, you know, I will accept and welcome and encourage Any kind of comparison to Alan Moore's greatest works, uh, so thank you. Uh, but no, you know, like beyond that, you know, something that struck me when I was reading—not to get ahead—can we start talking about it? I don't know. do yeah, like yeah, this format. is loose. Getting into okay, it. I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm I'm loose Willis, baby. Uh, so the bulk of Alan Moore's writing for comics was written before Watchmen. Mm-hmm. It's a record of this guy's process before mm-hmm. he sat down to write the thing that he is most famous for. Which I find mm-hmm. fascinating, um, but yes. to your point, Jack, um, and how much I'm like Alan Moore personally, and my work <laughs> reflects the greatness of his own. To, I mean, that was the point you were making. So, yeah, yes, that's uh, can, what yeah, I said. I just to what I said
3: verbatim, you, I think. you, yeah, you can yeah. go back and listen to it. Uh,
2: <laughs> uh, you know, something I was really struck by was this idea of you have this fully developed world, and you give people what they need as they need it. Um, mm-hmm. And that's something we really strive to do with no one left to fight. Um, you know, I, in fact, to the point where I've seen people actually kind of grouse about it, about like, what mm-hmm. the hell, are, you know, what is this guy talking about? And who is this guy. <laughs> and what is this thing? And like, that's kind of the point of it is to create, you know, it's, I say the illusion of depth, not to say mm-hmm. that, you know, stories aren't deep, but the fact is stories are a trick, you know, and like the, the, the bulk of a story exists in your brain. Cause it's all the stuff that you fill in. And, this idea of only giving the readers what they absolutely need and giving it to them in this uh, a subtle, understated way—that's a hundred percent something I, I I must have got it from this,
3: right? Like
2: mm-hmm. I, I'd forgotten yeah. where I'd where I'd stolen that from, but it's a hundred percent an Alan Moore. It
3: thing. was such an interesting, you know, in this book, Alan, or in this series of essays—I guess you should call it—in this series of essays, um, one of the things I thought was so interesting is, you know. Alan Moore, and and again, you're, you're so right that this is kind of detailing what his creative process was, just as he was about to gear up to write Watchmen. And you can see so many hints of it in here when he's talking about, and I think it's actually quite astute honestly this idea of like you want to create everything in the world so that you all you have to worry about is your characters living in it like it's better it's great to create like the tv shows and the brands and the products and everything like that because
1: that's what creates a lived-in world for us um you know so we really get to see how like the sausage is made on this and he's very open about his hesitations his fears as a writer and he starts off with the first chapter saying uh, basically lambasting Marvel for telling people to draw the Marvel comics away. Because, of course, that's stifling to c- the creativity of the comics medium. And he has a long diatribe about the fact that most comic books are worth about as much as greeting cards as far as like creative uh, saying something that's actually of value about the real world. Well, what I also
3: thought was really, really interesting about this segment uh, uh, and, and resonated me, with me a lot is that – um, a lot of what comic artists are doing with this kind of drawing comics the Marvel way is they're being inspired by someone who was inspired by other things that's what I thought was really interesting about it is yeah. that like you know he, he was kind of making the argument that a lot of comic artists are doing this impression of what will Eisner learned about cinematic framing and so now we're like three layers removed from actually being inspired by art and culture in the real world you know i thought this is something i've thought about you know uh uh uh, as well which is like i i sometimes think like if you're trying to do work in a specific medium whether it's like comedy or comic writing or whatever you are best off like not taking in stuff from that medium all the time you know what i mean like you should be reading (laughs) books and things like that to inspire you to like write better rather than just trying to write like you know uh, a, a comic artist that you like
2: Jack, can I tell you something? Can I be honest sure. with you? Please. You're hundred percent correct. You're absolutely, you're, you're absolutely correct. And this is the thing that drives me. You know, so, um, oh man, I have so many thoughts. So, uh, f- <laughs> first of all, obviously you're right. And like, dude, so years ago I was seeing a Ralph Bakshi double feature mm-hmm. and Ralph Bakshi was actually there and he got up and he spoke in the middle. It was in between wizards and, uh, his Lord of the Rings. Um, and, he which are, they're rough uh, y'all should do both, rough great, both great yes i movie.
3: i honestly everybody should watch but watch that lord of the rings it's yeah, good shit.
2: it's good all of this stuff is great but uh he got up and he spoke in the middle of it and he's like you know he's this crusty old born in palestine like when it was palestine <laughs> yeah like immigrated to america jewish guy and somebody asked him you know what kind of animation are you inspired by and he got mad he got really really angry <laughs> uh and he, he's like said, he said, listen. If you're working in animation and you're watching other animation, you're condemning yourself to mimicry. That's all you're going to do. He says, "I don't take inspiration from animation. I got all that when I was younger. Now I take inspiration from jazz music, which Uh, I don't hmm. don't know anything about (laughs) jazz music." But but like the point is, the the point here is not listen to jazz music. The point is pull from elsewhere, pull from Mm -hmm. everywhere you can to synthesize something new. And I think you know. So I have to real quick though. I need to do my apologia for how to draw the comics, how to draw comics. <laughs> okay, fair way. enough. Yeah, And Big John Buscema, uh, because I think that guy is um, a brilliant underrated talent for the way that he he synthesized and you're right, he did synthesize what Kirby was doing, but he mm-hmm. developed it into a house style that could be taken and easily lifted from and adhered to by other talents to mm-hmm. achieve a base level of quality. And what's funny about Alan Moore taking aim at that is that's exactly what Alan Moore's writing. for
1: comics. <laughs> is. It's exactly what it is. It is,
2: it is a rubric. It, it is an approach, not the only approach, but a potential approach to creating comics that adhere to a base level of quality. And mm-hmm. to your point, Jack, what's so fascinating and, you know, It plays out in the after. So I read this. I forgot about the existence of the afterward. And I read Mm -hmm. this whole thing (laughs) kind of grinding my teeth because I could see, you know, the history of comics since 85, 86, right? Which are the years that you got American Flag Mm -hmm. and Watchmen and Dark Knight Returns. Since then, the history of comics has of mainstream U.S. direct market comics has really been – Um, strip mining those works and those ideas for every ounce of juice left. That's like three different metaphors. But (laughs) uh, (laughs) um, that's been the history of comics. And as a result, you get this kind of copy of a copy of a copy feel all the time. And I read this thing thinking about all of the comics cluttering the racks. I'm not going to name any names live. um, That really do feel like fourth generation Xeroxes of what Alan Moore and Frank Miller and Howard Chaikin were doing 40 years ago. And it comes down to people kind of slavishly following this very specific approach, which as brilliant as it is, as much as I love this book, I don't think it's fully sufficient. And we can talk about that too, but like there are things that he just doesn't cover. And as a result, there's this whole school of contemporary comics. It's the bulk of contemporary comics that have become overly obsessed with the comics writer as author and kind of mimicking this mm-hmm. novelistic, very yeah. serious auteur approach. That and it and comics is an industry and a medium in US direct market. I feel like I always have to qualify because so somebody <laughs> isn't. What about manga? Uh but, Tintin of, isn't that way. Yes, That's not of, how of, Tintin is. Of, yeah, but here's the thing. The people, who, the people who would say that would pronounce it Tonton.
3: Tonton's not, tonton.
2: not that tonton. way. Uh, yeah, no, like there's 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 a whole world of approach to comics that have been abandoned and sort of forgotten Mm -hmm. about because of like this slavish approach which is why it was such a treat for me to be thinking that and then turn the page and then it's Alan Moore saying the exact same shit.
3: Listen, (laughs) I I absolutely love that Alan Moore, and actually that is what makes me think this is a great writing pamphlet, is that he at the end is, because I here's my real, and I taught writing, uh, comedy writing for a little bit, I think that there's no good way to be a writing teacher without on the last day being like, this was all bullshit. And just do what you got to do. It works best for you. You know what I mean? Like there's not like I actually can't trust a how to write work um, unless the author acknowledges at the end. No one knows anything. And we're just trying to make fun stories really in the end.
2: It's, you know, I think a lot about how writing, whether comics or anywhere else, has been, a, been done a real disservice by how it's viewed as not art. Right. Mm-hmm. Like we, we think about art, right? Like you, you draw something, you paint something, you sculpt something. Right. Maybe you're a cinematographer, but writing something separate, right? And writing is seen as this I don't know, it's seen as craftless, right? The way people look at it, right? Because if you're, if you're, if you want to become a painter, what do you do? Like where do you start? You copy, you mimic, you, you, you. Find the greats, who whatever you consider them are, and you copy their works, right? And this this is true in all forms of art except for writing. People don't do like this, like and and this and this happens sometimes. People have been known to do it, but I think that you know the idea of like, oh, if you want to be a comics writer, write a, write a script in the style of Alan Moore, but then also write a script in the style of Chris Claremont, also write one in the style of Brian Bendis, right? Like, it, like that's how you really learn to be a comics writer because you learn how all these different things work, and then you assemble your own style so i think alan moore's writing for comics is really interesting in that regard because it is a viewpoint it's it's a it's a look at how to write comics the alan moore way right um and to to the like about the afterwards something else that's really fascinating about when that the afterward was published so i think the after was done it was dated it was done to, in
3: 2003 yeah
2: yeah so um if you think about what was going on at that time, right? Specifically with Alan Moore, I think that's right. I meant to look this up, but I think that's right around the time that DC bought Wildstorm Comics. Now, this is significant because Alan Moore did his entire America's Best Comics line, which is Promethea and Tom Strong and Top 10 and some other stuff that I'm forgetting. Um he had done those at Wildstorm when it was separate and run by Jim Lee, and then it got purchased by D.C. and the nature of the contracts um, and Alan Moore just has terrible luck with contracts uh, the nature of the contracts he thought that he had full rights to those but it turns out they went to D.C. and that, like that they have some kind of ownership of them and stuff I think League of Extraordinary Gentlemen was the only one that was carved out somehow um, but yeah no wonder that guy was bitter no wonder that guy was throwing his <laughs> hands up in the air because he's just seen once again his like his brilliant hard work defining an entire and that line of america's best comics is completely different from what he was doing in the 80s right he developed a whole new style a whole new approach to writing comics he did it it was successful it was wonderful people loved it and then he ended up getting screwed by the exact same company that screwed him 20 or 15 years ago. who he
3: swore he'd never work for again and then they just were like well what if we buy you what I about know. if we buy you and you have to work for us? I really think that might be the era when he was most firing on all cylinders. That's like his like Kirby New Gods era when he was like doing top 10 and Tom Strong and fucking League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. Like that's like he was just like vibing, <laughs> like just putting out tons of comics.
2: I agree. And Prometheus too. Promethea is probably my Promethea favorite in so this good. bunch. Um, and it's because of J.H. Williams' artwork, you know? Mm-hmm. And like, I think that that speaks to sort, sort of what I found to be the deficiency in Alan Moore's writing for comics is that he talks not at all about, about like, I don't know, he mentions it a little bit, but not to any real significant extent the page as a storytelling. Mm-hmm. And this is a this is a big shaken thing, right? And so he mentions American flag, but he doesn't mention what's most significant about American flag, which is the use of a single page as a storytelling element in and of itself. It's not a collection of individual elements that are smashed onto the page. The page is a unit in and of itself. And good comic book writing, to my mind, should utilize that and lean into it. And that, you know, when I write comics, that's always at the forefront of my mind is that every single page needs to be awesome in one way or the other, right? And it can be because it's just like a big splash of somebody powering up, but it can also be for any number of other reasons. And I know for a fact that Alan Moore understands that, right? And and Promethea is, I think, probably one of the best examples of that because of the work that he did with J.H. Williams III on that. Um, but I found it fascinating that it wasn't mentioned in here. And and, it, and it's and it's an interesting too thing too, because I think that that is a piece of comic book writing that is broadly ignored currently by contemporary comic book writers
1: this because he's writing for a fanzine, right and like by the point where you're actually as a writer comic book writer from a fan reading these interviews to the point where you're working with jh williams is probably a long way so it felt (laughs) like to me mostly what alan moore was trying to do was to kind of filter out the people like who just want to write comic books just because they like think they like spider-man and you want to write spider-man i one of the things that really stood out to me he has a question about comic book plots and comic books are mostly you know focused on plot but he asks you like if mr terrific man fights mr devilish man over the nuclear power plant and then mr terrific man is able to defeat uh devilish man so what what is the why are you writing that story is it are you just Putting pages on the self. I thought that was a really interesting way uh, to talk about plot. Like, just, and he comes back to it again and again. Like, what is the idea behind the story? The plot is one thing, the action scenes are one thing, but what is the actual idea? You have to have some kind of idea. Otherwise, there's no point in writing it.
3: I and and I actually think you know if you really look back on it and you know if you're not looking at comics that have become a facsimile of a facsimile and you know are basically just following a beat plot by plot, I actually think that that goes back to like the origins of comics you know what i mean like i actually think like when you look back at like you know captain america like was you know created by jack kirby to like reflect what was going on in the and world joe and, simon, and may, joe simon if and I and joe simon and joe simon you know uh, um i think superman people there's people have talked at length about this about it being sort of a representative of what the immigrant experience is like coming to america uh, um i think that All these comics which ended up getting boiled down to just good guy versus bad guy because of the realities of having to release one every month. They all kind of did start from a place of actual
1: like connection to reality by the creators. Yeah, he talks about the the 15 word uh rule, I guess. He, he kind of offhandly mentions it where if you're making a comic book character, you should be able to describe them in 15 words and make them sound awesome. And that's like how the the shallowness of the characterization.
2: This is the only place I've ever heard of that rule. I'm not saying I'm not saying people were People weren't using it back then, but right. for what, like for what it's worth, by the time like I got my dumbass got to Marvel <laughs> okay. Comics, that wasn't a thing people were saying anymore. They, Maybe well, they he, started he canceled again, it. I don't know. He can't.
1: He stopped he it. He, it. Stopped, yeah. he stopped <laughs> he it. He
2: stopped
1: it. Maybe he well, thought I mean, somebody was going to come up with it, and he just poisoned the well beforehand. <laughs> like Not one it. editor thought he he was really clever.
2: The thing that I've thought about constantly ever since reading this, it's tied in. It's tied in with this like plot discussion, which is that, you know, Alan Moore says, look, there's a bunch of things. And this to me is still like the, the most freeing and helpful piece of advice that I personally got from this book, which is the idea that look, a story needs, you know, whether it's a comic book or anything else, a story needs a list of like half a dozen things. I know he runs them down in there, but I've forgotten what they are. (laughs) Um, (laughs) uh, But here's the key part. It doesn't matter what order you get them in. Right and like you know, so like when he's talking about the the plot stuff, he says, "Look, your story needs an idea. It needs like it needs like an actual idea. It needs to be about something. Yes, yes. You don't have to start with that. You can start anywhere as long as you get there eventually. And that to me was a really freeing thing as a younger writer because you know it's really easy to get caught up in your own head and not want Mm -hmm. to put pencil to paper until you have." the entire world laid out, you know, theme. the themes and you know, the yeah. characters, Yeah, and, and the fact of the matter is sometimes that stuff comes about from doing the work, mm-hmm. you know, um, but like, I don't know, there's something meditative about dragging your pen across the page. And-
1: like Bradys now says, like, I know what the last line I want to write is. And that, and then, you know, Four 500 pages later he has American Psycho but he has just a little small thing and Alan Moore makes a specific note like if you have a cool idea for some sort of uh, set piece or scene write it down even if you don't have the story yet right you'll find a place for it at some point.
3: I really like him saying basically like I come up with these ideas for like how a page could work. Like all the all the captions on a page and then the last one is actually like a sign that's in the world or whatever. Uh, um, I think it's good to kind of parcel out these things and be like, you know what writing is? It's cool moments, but it's also like big ideas. And it kind of has to be both for a story to be like really satisfying and, you know, hit that next level.
2: It's another thing I really liked about this. I like about this book is that. It doesn't shy away from the fact that I mean obviously Alan Moore is a singularly brilliant creator, right? obviously, um, but he doesn't he doesn't do the thing that a lot of really talented clever creators do, which is they hide the seams. Right, they make it look easy. They're like, "Oh yeah, this stuff just flows out of me, and I get inspired." And then here's yeah. this brilliant piece of work. Uh, w- the way he describes it, in here writing a comic sounds like a nightmare. It sounds like <laughs> an absolute nightmare, and it is. Like it's, it's, it's like, difficult, yeah, man. Building
3: and, a house or something. Yeah, dude, like It's es- a lot of moving parts,
2: especially if you're trying to fit them in twenty page increments.
3: Mm-hmm. Especially,
2: yeah. and, and he had more than that. Especially if you give a shit. Yeah. <laughs> That's the other thing. That's the trick. That's the trick to making comics, writing comics the easy way. Don't give a shit, <laughs> Don't give
3: a shit and turn in the papers.
1: <laughs> but yeah, no, and I think in,
2: in some ways it's gotten even harder to write comics because the market's become much less forgiving. It's become a, there's a smaller market of people who are buying these single issues. Um, the big publishers, are, they flood the racks with stuff, right? Especially if it's Marvel or DC and they've got the TV or film connection. And what's more, you know, like like I love the part where he's talking about um yes, Superman Star- the man who has everything. The man who has everything. The man who has everything. Cool. Um, where he breaks down kind of his thought process like going page to page on that thing. Um and I'm thinking Motherfucker, I would kill to have forty some pages to to do a single issue. I gotta do twenty. I gotta do twenty pages, and what's more, what's more, I gotta do five of those, and they have to hold together as a hundred page thing yes, later yep, once they're collected. Yep. Like all of the like, and this is one of the things I love about writing comics. It's also one of the most difficult things. It's just all the formal constraints of it. You know, like when I was at Marvel, we would have um, a lot of times during that era TV writers would come in, because we were just, we were very enamored with the idea of like, oh, you wrote an episode of Law and Order? You gotta get your ass in here and write spider Yeah, that's
3: that's the era of, of Damon Lindelof's Ultimate Hulk taking seven years to come out and stuff yeah, like that, I like, right? I like that book, but yeah, it was, it 100% was
2: my era. Uh, I didn't work on that book, so don't blame me. But Okay, well, uh, I mean, I didn't
3: say anything bad about no, it, I no, just no, said I it only, took a long time to come out. <laughs> I only worked on the good books. Uh, okay, good, good. Thank you. Uh,
1: but yeah,
2: so, you know, guys would come in and they would not understand that in film and television dialogue is time so if you're if you're writing a gilmore girls episode you can just tell them to like talk faster and it's fine but in comics dialogue is space everything is space and that's like and again like coming back to like the the and page layout thing like that's why page layout is so important and yeah, I don't know. I forget what my point was. It's a great book. <laughs> it's wonderful. Uh it's I don't know. It's it, it was a really it was a really inspiring thing for me. I finished reading it last night in anticipation of this podcast. Um and it was kind of late. It was later than I normally work. Um but I immediately got up my computer and started working on a thing that I had been working on because it it's inspirational, man. I find it to be at least. Like this It gets me all fired up,
3: especially compared to a lot of the sort of I've read some other fucking writing books and screenwriting books or whatever, and they're so cynical and commercial and they're so about just like on this page, get to this thing. These are the events that have to happen in a script or whatever. Um, And I thought this was a really interesting one and an inspiring one, because It's both like this piece actually is about commercial writing, and he does talk about needing to make things, you know, acceptable and fun for a wider audience. Uh, But he also talks about and this is not something that you will ever hear in any Save the Cat the importance for it to actually be saying something real and like the why does this art even need to exist of it all? Like, I actually found this, you know, aside from it being about comic book writing, I would kind of tell I would after having read it now, I'd be like, you know, I think this was. A good writing manual for anyone trying to write any type yes, of yes, fiction. You know, uh,
2: I think that's also kind of the weakness of it though, right? In that it's it is really it's more just Alan Moore's writing than it is mm-hmm. Alan Moore's writing for comics, in my opinion. You know, like there's like Yes, I, I think that's I fair. I don't Not think fair, he really yeah. I don't think he really grapples very much with
3: comics
1: with the four he tells you to but he tells you he
3: kind of is like you should be thinking about like shots and stuff like that but it really is just a lot more about like how to holistically create a story you know it's really (laughs) i think
2: this also speaks to the era that he was writing in right and i think this is the thing that i am really preoccupied with in my work and also just generally because i'm crazy um is this idea so like comics you know, comics used to be a mass medium, right? Um, And then with the rise of film, it stopped being a mass medium and it, it it hasn't been a mass medium since. And what that means is comics has had to find other ways to distinguish itself, right? And the ways that comics have done that over the years have varied. For a really long time, it was really just the old chestnut of comics are movies, but with an infinite special effect budget. You can have the whole, like, Atlantean army march out of the ocean with monsters and stuff like that. You don't really have to worry about how much it's going to cost. And that was enough to distinguish comics. But then, you know, CG and special effects and budgets went up. And now that's no longer a thing. And then and then it became continuity. Um, and as we know now from watching MCU movies and DC TV shows continuity and canon is a huge part of these things as well. So That's certainly a way to
3: addict people. That's a way to addict people is that if I miss any of this story, I don't know the whole story of it all.
2: And, you know, reading Alan Moore's writing for comics and thinking about kind of the legions of writers that have followed in his footsteps and tried to kind of emulate what he does in his approach to comics, you know, it occurs to me that, you know, Alan Moore rose to prominence at a time when you didn't need to grapple so intensely with what makes comics distinct from other mediums. Um, Comics still had enough of its own place and own aura and had its own um, list of strengths that have since kind of evaporated and that it no longer has to boast. Um, And it's not, and I don't mean to imply that Alan Moore, you know, didn't know how to use comics. That's absurd, right? He clearly did. But to him, writing this thing in whatever, in 1985, that probably wasn't the forefront of his mind. The idea of like, oh, you know, how do you use the formal aspects of comics in a way to deliver a story that could only be told in comics? That wasn't the thing he was considering because he didn't need to. Now, in 2021, you have to. I think you have to. Um, If you want to avoid ending up with just kind of like, I don't know, More of the like shovelware failed spec script and screenplay comics that clutter the racks, you know.
3: You you kind of uh, hinted at it earlier, but what's so funny about this is that this is Alan Moore writing about comic writing right before everyone tried to imitate him for 30 years. You know, so it is like it's a weird thing where it's like he's kind of talking about a form of comics that would never exist from that point forward. Like the mustache twirling, you know, um, good always wins kind of comic. You know, uh, um, he even references like I need to send you a PDF of Beef Bros. (laughs) I have it. I have Beef Bros. Uh, (laughs) uh, I I need to
2: look at it. I need to look at it.
3: I've read No No One Left to Fight. I need to to get back. I need to get my Beef Bros in.
2: What you're talking about – I agree, you know, like it's it's a fascinating thing, especially, you know, with that afterward appended to the end. And it reminds me, Alan Moore's like laying out of like, look, this is how you do comics. And then 20 some years later being like, oh, geez, stop doing <laughs> why comics. Why did you all listen to me? Stop so doing you, comics why that way. the fuck did you listen yeah. to me? <laughs> I love it. But you know what it reminds me of? Um, it, it's It reminds me precisely of, kind of the meta-narrative of Dark Knight Returns and Dark Knight Strikes Again, right? Dark Knight Returns established a mode of specifically of superhero storytelling um, that was then ripped off without fully understanding it, in most cases, for decades. And then Frank Miller came back to do Dark Knight Strikes Again and produced the antithesis of... Um, it was a rebuttal. Of Dark Knight Returns, and people yeah. fucking hated it. People something <laughs> about it, but yeah. to, but to my mind, Dark Knight Strikes again works kind of the same way as Alan Moore's afterward in uh in writing for comics.
1: Yeah, in some of his quotes in the afterward, uh, he says reputation is a trap. Don't worry about your legacy. And he had this really good one where he says, "If you're t- uh, this is." With regards to artists, uh, writers challenging themselves, doing something new, doing something different, and not doing the same thing that has brought them success. He says, if your talent is of any genuine worth, it should be able to weather squalls of unpopularity and audience incomprehension. I think he gets that from his musician friends, because that's a pretty common conception in music. But yeah, I think it it applies to writing, too.
2: I I love that bit, too, man. It's easy to it's easy to fall into the trap of, okay, well, I did this story and what should I do next? And what is, you know, what would be more commercial? And, you know, people didn't respond to this. So maybe I should like adjust and, you know, like, like they really like this. Maybe I should go back to doing that other thing. Um, but you know, to his point, like, that's not, that's not why you should be writing anything. Right. (laughs) You know, like there's, there's easier ways to make a buck.
3: Mm-hmm. there's easier and, and more also,
2: reliable ways to make a buck if if you're not
3: comments. trying to say anything and and you're writing then i'm like just stop <laughs> if you're not trying to say anything about the world i'm like i don't i don't need to spend my time with this you know and i don't need it to be so heavy-handed like fucking superman telling police like you better be better you know here in america or whatever but i'm like i i do want you know there to be some connection with our actual real world, you know, uh, um, I won't say anyone specifically because I don't want, you know, to put you on the on the ropes with any uh, modern writers or whatever, but But so much so much. Comic writing is just so self-reflective, especially the big two, and with its like obsession with canon. So much are almost like what-if stories. Like, and it's like, man, like I know that you all grew up with these stories and everything like that, but like it actually isn't enough just to like wonder, you know, how Superman would have reacted if like Dark Side won or something. You know what I mean? I'm like, it actually that's not enough to explore.
2: You know, you can tell a couple pages in which writers only read comics or at best, you know, watch prestige television Mm -hmm. as well. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. Because that is the extent of their influences, you know, and I, I think Alan Moore touches on that in this, too. He's like, you know, go. Doesn't he or am, I, or am I nuts? He does. does.
3: He, he know He does. That's a big part of the first part of it is that he's like taking other stuff and like oh, write about him. write about the world, write well, about the world him, that you know. Book, yeah. you know. Yeah, you know, go yeah. outside. Like he goes on a great he goes on a great tangent about just writing about swamp thing. How much he learned about like the like pests that lived there and, and stuff Louisiana, like that. Louisiana. He's learned the word yeah.
1: ass <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> This is a great yeah. word. And he talks. <laughs> you know, and he always gets to. Well, Alan Moore always gets back to people and humanity. And he talks Mm. a lot about if you want to create a realistic character, you actually have to love and care and talked about actual people. You have to kn- get to know people. And that's where you get to the, the depth, uh, from that's where you get your stories from. And the and the memorable moments from That's where you get your emotions from, from looking at your emotions and how other people react. And I just like the humanistic w- approach he has mm-hmm. to writing.
2: I thought that was lovely too, honestly. Um, and it's something that it, it's something that's been a lot on my mind in the past, um, The past year and a half. Um, I wonder why. Uh, uh, (laughs) What a coincidence! Uh, What changed? Yeah, uh, it's been it's been a lot on my mind too, because you know I, I think that people get writers a lot of times get really enamored with themselves, and you know, like the self aggrandizement that comes with creation, and I think that that produces insufficient works. That produces works that are more about impressing people or getting big numbers or getting a lot of people talking than they are about achieving the actual goal of art, which is the exploration of your own and also the it's, – it's about exploring your own humanity from a selfish, narcissistic point, right? As a as a creator, you're exploring yeah. your own humanity and creating something. But the hope is that you also create something that facilitates other people to explore their own humanity. Mm-hmm. And – if you are, if you don't love people, if you're a cynical asshole, yeah. <laughs> a real bitter, this is the bastard, problem I've been
3: having with uh, writing lately. To be honest with you, <laughs> you
2: know, like I, like I think, I think you put, a, I think you put a ceiling on how well you can accomplish either of those goals. You, you know, there, there is, and this is a thing that I've, I've never, I've never had the pleasure of meeting Alan Moore, um, but a thing I've always heard from people is that you know Alan Moore has this reputation from. How heavy and dark, and how you know somebody gets raped in every one of his works, and like, like all that, like all like the like yeah. like how heavy his stuff reads, and how dry his wit is, and how it comes across in the written word. A lot of times, people assume this guy is like this humorless old grump, yeah. but apparently he's not. Apparently, he's just like the warmest, kindest, most lovely man you can imagine. And I think that that's that's key, man. Have you all I mean, seen? Have you all seen Beach Bum?
3: I love Beach Bum. I love Beach that's Bum. What the, that's I, what
2: Beach Bum is about, man. I, about- I aspire.
3: <laughs> I aspire. Like, what? What a dream life! If you could be the Beach Bum and you've got a beautiful wife who's earning the money and like you just chill. That is, the Beach Bum lifestyle. I'm a big fan of <laughs> Beach
2: Bum. Beach Bum knocked me on my ass and hit me right exactly where I live. Very way. funny, that's too. Two actually, metaphors uh, <laughs> that, because. It's about it's about what Alan Moore is talking about. It's about creation as an act of joy. It's about you know creating things not because you're a tortured artist. <laughs> that shit is boring and it makes yeah. boring works. Yeah, art art needs to be created by people who are excited about life because otherwise, why do you want their point of view? Why would you want the point of view of someone who doesn't take joy in all of the things around them? And I think that that's I don't know that's. Or at the very least, like, wants to
3: find joy. You know what I mean? Like, I do think that it doesn't have to be about, like, relentless positivity. But I do agree with you that I'm like, you know, you you want someone who, like loves humans you know what i mean like loves humans in the actual real world another thing i was going to say by the way about the portrayal of alan moore and how people think he's a prickly asshole and everything like that i think a big part of that has to do with that he gave a big middle finger to meg to mega media companies and they have like portrayed him as an absolute psycho because he didn't want his name on lxg or
2: something like that like what's happened in pop culture broadly Relatively recently, in terms of people subsuming their identity, I agree into yeah. corporate-owned intellectual property. Mm-hmm. That has been the case in the co- in comics for generations.
3: Yes, yes.
2: There was a, there was a period in like the aughts when there were a lot of like these older creators' estates mm-hmm. bringing lawsuits against Marvel and DC for ownership, and people and fans were irate. They were livid at the thought that they wouldn't be able to get any more Supergirl stories or whatever, right? Um, and it was wild. It w- it's like a wild, servile thing. And at the time, I thought, wow, only in comics.
3: <laughs> and and now- as it turned out, <laughs> only in everything, only yeah, in man. everything. Uh, the comic bookification of all media. Um,
1: all right. So that was... On that Al- note. <laughs> yeah. So that was Alan Moore's writing for comics, Aubrey, where can people find you?
2: I am, you know, the easiest thing is just aubreysitterson.com. It's A-U-B-R-E-Y-S-I-T-T-E-R-S-O-N.com. I'm on Twitter is where I'm most active. Uh, it's just my name, Instagram, Facebook. You can find me there. But uh, here's here's the thing, man. Um, pre-order No One Left to Fight too.
3: Mm-hmm. Buy
2: Savage Hearts. Buy Worst Dudes. They're out right now. Um, and yeah, be on the lookout because I've, I've got some new exciting stuff launching later this
1: year very cool thank you so much for listening to the Alan Moore podcast next time we'll be talking about the next five chapters of Jerusalem peace
4: except the few that pass away in cinemas at midnight leave are sprawling the footlights for the the usherette or the ice cream girl to find and if I die God knows I might don't make me die in black and white don't make me share a haunted scream with all those other ghost boys who stood, trampling in the foyer, sipping wine. Cuffs, shoot the cuffs, check the time, and step outside and get cut down by dead policemen' faces strobing in the panic light. Their long dark cars parked out the back, their halos black against the night. John Dillinger's name the finest bullet silver, etched upon their hearts, a coat of two upon the skin, right next to where the badge is pinned. I could die carefully. At dusk. Cause buddy, I once owned a pair of diamond collar studs. And as I live and breathe, I swear that that's no lie men with such good taste as me deserve to cash their chips more elegant than those without a shirt upon their back or shine upon their dancing shoes like uh, you like playing poker being dealt the ace of flames you stand and whispering once your mother's name pitch headlong dead across the roulette table, bullet holes pinned like our Mr. Poppies in neat rows across your back or drowning You know, so so many hoods and hitmen got sent down to tread the riverbed for all eternity, and now they look like statues in some cold submerged art gallery. And I would gladly kiss the hand of any man who'd bind my wrists and send me down to to be in such good company. Dutch hoods, Capone, white men like that. in their eyes, and when they walked in groups of more than three, they must have looked like grounded constellations torn down from a B film sky. Old gangsters, they never die. in the 1920s where they never pulled aside the blind and looked outside to find that that 50 years had washed away all of the legends and the, and the suit suits and the bloodstains like a fistful of dead roses someone left there with a the hat check girl and... And drove off in old Chicago With their windows wound And their radio turned down To keep their holstered shoulders Cold and dry Old gangsters Show here in my very hand. Enjoy that show, and, and when you kiss that girl, good night. There, they're in a red dress, streaming. Do it carefully. Good burgundy upon the tongue, for she will kill you, John. And one must always kiss one's killer. <laughs> now ain't that so? Hey, Ma, please shut your boys out there. As I live and breathe, I swear I never seen a bear who felt so sweet to hear the final poetry accord in the air or turn their faces up
3: like so,
4: receiving death as as if it were a a mother's kiss or something black, rare. tonight come on let's pass out that Jack daniels and we'll talk about old murders yeah and double crosses and dead blondes and we'll say here's looking at you here's blood in your eyes
1: Like what you hear want to hear more check us out at patreon.com struggle session or sesh.plus or struggle for all our public episodes commercial free as well as hundreds of bonus episodes thank you to all our listeners for holding us down five years strong